Nearly 80% of the trillion-dollar infrastructure bill is slated for grants. Only a sliver is destined for federal contract. That's all according to a detailed analysis by Bloomberg government. For details, we turn to BGov senior data analyst Paul Murphy. Paul, good to have you back. Uh, good to be with you, Tom. Happy holidays. And nobody can discern what's really in the numbers better than you, Paul. So tell us about this bill. What is it really all about here? Well, you know, it's a fascinating piece of legislative and financial artisanship. It's actually a hybrid authorization and appropriations bill. It's got 11 parts. And the first half roughly is reauthorization of the Surface Transportation Act and then the Surface Transportation Reauthorization Act, Surface Transportation Investment Act, basically highway trust fund and related programs. And then it's got a bunch of other infrastructure items added to that in various divisions going down, Division A, B, C, D, and so forth. You get to Division J, And it's the appropriations that they're pushing out quickly so that they can jumpstart all the infrastructure programs, even as the CR is ongoing through uh, February 18th. So is this bill mainly about bridges and roads and I don't know what else, dams and that kind of infrastructure of a trillion dollars? You're looking at 15 percent is actually for contracts. And is that for federal contracts or is this mostly going to be done through the states? Well, the trillion figure is a combined figure with the authorization you know, and the appropriation. So the authorization is roughly $650 billion and the appropriation is about 550 So we went through the appropriations line item by line item. It's a thousand page bill. And we went through item by item and we detailed the parts of the appropriations bill one by one and then made assessments as to whether they were mostly grants, mostly contracts or a mix. So of that roughly 550, we determined there were about 138 programs that were combination of contracts and grants or just exclusively contracts. And about 80 billion of that is actually exclusive contracts. We went through the supplemental documents from OMB. We went through USA Spending, really researched these programs to get a feel for exactly what was contained in them. And we think this is a, a pretty good number. And the goal, of course, is to try and help clients. We're getting a lot of questions about what companies can reasonably pursue. So we're mostly focused on federal prime contracts. And so these are prime contracts directly issued by agencies. And we think this is a good number to hang ahead on, roughly about $125 billion fenced in total contracts and mix of contracts and grants. All right. So $125 billion in there for federal contracts, that is contracts let by federal agencies. And for what? What is it they're going to contract for? Well, mostly by our assessment, we, we went through after we detailed the items and after we assigned contract and grant categories, we went through and looked at the different markets. And it looks like uh, most of it's going to be for energy. It looks like a lot of alternative uh, power programs, a lot of battery uh, recharging stations, a lot of infrastructure to strengthen the grid and make the grid more efficient. But then after that, based on our preliminary assessment, we're looking at a lot of water and wastewater system rehab, you know, the lead pipes and and the pollution from Superfunds and other pollution sites around the country that have been contaminating water. They're strengthening the uh, water cleanliness and wastewater treatment. Uh, And then comes communications. The big chunk of that is going to be broadband, broadband investment, broadband extension into rural areas, broadband extension into underserved areas. Those seem to be the key items. All right. We're speaking with Paul Murphy. He's senior data analyst at Bloomberg Government. So that's the $125 billion. But you said also there's a ton of grants coming under this bill. Is it possible to tell where those are going in general and what those are intended for? I mean, is that where the states get to build roads and bridges? 
And that's where you get into the roads and bridges. Most of the highway infrastructure is funded through the uh, Highway Trust Fund, the Mass Transit Trust Fund, and through uh, grant programs from the Department of Transportation. And you're starting to see now, if you monitor the Federal Register, which we all do, of course, you can see notices coming out. The Federal Highway Administration just issued its allocation notices for the states. One of the things the bill does, it's kind of interesting, it utilizes something called a contract authority. It's not budget authority, it's contract authority, which basically enables agencies to incur obligations in advance of their appropriations. And so they issued these allocations so that the states and localities can start planning for the highway programs that they have in line to be funded by the Infrastructure Act. Yeah, so build it on a wish and a prayer, I guess, and hope the money will come through. Well, yeah, let's hope that there's going to be a budget at the uh, <laughs> end of the uh, tunnel here with the uh, CR going to February 18th. Uh, I, I think in all likelihood there's going to be, but you know, still, I think part of the goal of this bill, this uh, IIJA, Infrastructure Investment Jobs Act, is you know, to jumpstart these programs in advance to get them going before the uh, CR and, and the appropriations bills are passed. So then a large portion of this trillion-dollar so-called bill then is really found in appropriations of the regular budget that have not come through yet. Yes, a, a very good part of it still remains to be seen. You know, a lot of you know, the bill, I think, is just going to fund programs that are ongoing with a boost, with this boost we see in the Division J of, of the bill. A lot of this is additional money in addition to the normal uh, authorization amounts we would expect to see. And along with that, I think we're going to see, you know, a lot of existing contracts be utilized to you know, get this work out the door. Because as you know, when these funding bills come so late in the year, there's a very narrow window to push this money out the door before the end of the fiscal year. So another thing you're seeing in this bill is a lot of the money is multi-year funding. So they make explicit that, you know, it's going to be available for three, five, 10 years. So hopefully it won't go away at the end of September. However, you know, there is, you know, the regular authorizations that have to be concerned about that. Now, on the grid, getting back to that $125 billion sliver that is for federal contracts, what kinds of companies do this sort of work? I don't know how many wiring companies are there that string wires on those big metal towers that go interstate. Oh, there's hundreds, uh, <laughs> hundreds of companies. And, and obviously, there's some big vendors that uh, you might expect that are involved in you know, EIS, uh, you know, the transition to uh, the new communication systems. The big engineering companies, of course, are going to be the likely you know, go-to companies. Uh, even if they aren't the primes, you know, they may wind up being subs to uh, other primes. But uh, they are a lot of the companies that are doing work right now, for, you know, particularly for the Army Corps, and at the state and local level for the you know, State Department of Transportation, because you know these grants, which is going to be most of the uh, money coming through the IIJA, the grants will typically go to states in the form of block grants or other kinds of grants and then reissued as contracts at the state and local level. So a lot of these companies are, are well known, but there's a heavy emphasis. You know, at the end of the bill, they talk about reauthorizing the Minority Business Development Agency, creating a Minority Business Development Center, also creating rural Minority Business Development Centers. So there's a real active push to engage small businesses, underserved communities, you know, as part of the infrastructure rebuild. Got it. And in these types of civil projects, water and wastewater grid construction or whatever they do with grids, rewire it. I don't know much about the electrical grid. And for communication, that's installing broadband types of devices. Then is the general model here that you've got large engineering and contracting companies that would then use subs, which presumably they would try to make as small and disadvantaged businesses? Well, I don't see any way around that. I think that this money is being pushed out quickly. I think the whole intent of uh, passing the bill now in advance of 
you know, the end of the CR is to, you know, get these projects jump started. And so I think there's going to be, you know, heavy emphasis on use of existing contracts uh, and funding vehicles. You know, a lot of vendors have been pre-vetted. And, you know, they have vehicles to do this work. So I would expect that at least in the short term that they would you know, try and utilize the resources and the financial contract vehicles they have in place. Again, with the CR going through February, there's really not much time to administer procurements through the end of the fiscal year. And, you know, a lot of agencies are just going to try and push this money out the door in the most efficient way possible. So the scramble is on then. Exactly. Paul Murphy is a senior data analyst at Bloomberg Government. As always, thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. Good to be with you. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the President and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual uh, afloat commands. Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, and then after I retired, after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con- consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin. And what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I We'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from C to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but 
uh, the quality that that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career, but really it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Um, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. When I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories. Uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment, and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book, and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon, uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons in, in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and 
reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is, is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally and, agree. And, and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler, and to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast. We'll see you next time. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit LiveXLive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.